0: Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm interviewing Jimmy Wong, actor, musician, YouTube personality, and host of The Command Zone with Josh Lee Kwai. Every week, Jimmy and Josh discuss gameplay strategy, deck-building tips, and set reviews for Magic the Gathering. The Command Zone focuses primarily on the Commander format, also known as Elder Dragon Highlander, or EDH. Jimmy also co-starred in the hit YouTube series Video Game High School and also is the co-host of another popular show called Feast of Fiction. I asked Jimmy about how he got started playing Magic and the other content that he creates. I hope you enjoyed my interview with the talented Jimmy Wong. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and today I'm here with a talented Jimmy Wong. Jimmy, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Sammy? Thanks so much for joining me today. And where are you joining us from? I'm joining
1: you from sunny Los Angeles, where it is 6.30 p.m. and very sunny. Oh, that's
0: awesome. Yeah, it's still a little cloudy here. Where are you at? I am up here in Seattle. Oh, very nice. Sea town My favorite. That's where I was born. That's right. That's where you're from. (laughs) Well, I just wanted to jump right in and I wanted to ask you, Jimmy, how did you get into playing magic? I started playing magic at a very young
1: age. It was I think second or third grade. I went to a place called Sunnydale and on the pavement outside of Sunnydale after class, I would see these kids playing cards on the ground and it was really like I looked at it and I saw these like cool like I saw a horse on fire and I saw demonic tutors art and stuff and I was like this looks really sweet and it was at the same time that pogs were also a big thing for a lot of kids and it was like a wave after wave of like what's the new cool toy that everyone's playing with on the playground and it settled on magic and of course magic is also from Seattle so there's a lot more I think just people playing Magic there than anywhere else in the world when the game first came out. So, I got to be a little lucky and it was around Ice Age and I started playing. I bought a, I bought some cards from my local card store. I opened a Badlands, I remember. That was like the best card I ever opened. Uh, I played for about a year and then I dropped it and I came back to Magic uh, for Journey into Nyx. So, I took a break from Ice Age all the way to Journey into Nyx.
0: That's amazing. And who taught you how to play Magic?
1: Uh, at first, it was the kids on the playground, so we had our own rough rules of how it worked. And I played a mono-red burn deck that just had a lot of incinerates and lightning bolts in it. So, I was I was born and bred a red player. When I came back to Magic, there was a lot of, again, talking to each other as we played about why stuff worked and how the wording worked. And then I slowly started learning more about the rules myself. The big thing that having a podcast forces you to do is like you have to know the game and never make mistakes because people will call you out on it and you don't want to be giving false information out too. So, there's a lot of study on my part after we started podcasting uh, myself and Josh to make sure that we got all the interactions right and really became like almost rules lawyers in a way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You are the co-host with Josh Lee Kwai of the hit podcast, the hit show, The Command Zone. Nice. I like putting the term hit before it. It makes it sound like we're on TV or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, going back a little bit further, you were on a hit TV series or a hit web series, Video Game High School. Yes, that was the first major
1: internet project that I did that I think most people know me from. Yes, and your character
0: was Ted. Yep, Theodore. Theodore. And uh, your brother produces that.
1: Yep, Freddie Wong, my older brother, we're a year and a half apart. We also grew up in Seattle. Actually, around the same time I was learning how to play Magic, Freddie was at the same school as me. And I'm pretty sure that he learned at that same time too. Uh, because I remember playing on our sort of like living room floor, but the memory is pretty hazy. But yeah, he was he was right there when it all began, the addiction. That was really cool. How did you get casted for video game high school? Well, for one, for he's my brother and he made the show. <laughs> but he actually didn't write the series. It was written by currently his uh, company's co-founder, uh, Matthew Arnold also with one of the writers at Rocket Jump, uh, Will Campos, and then the guy that played the law, Brian Forenzi And so, the three of them sat and came up with this crazy idea. It was Will's friend's idea originally and then they transformed it into video game high school. And they really wanted to put Freddy in it at the time because Freddy's channel was the Freddy W channel. People knew him for being Freddy W and it was Freddy W making, you know, a series and him taking his team to be a a sort of a bigger series. So, they really wanted to cast Freddy but Freddy didn't want to be a main character. So, they're like, well, we need a character that like still embodies that, you know, sort of role that Freddy would have placed and so, Ted, his son... This character was created and they, you know, obviously, I was living with everyone at the time and they really enjoyed our chemistry, my brother and me, because there's a lot of us yelling at each other. So, they were like, cool, we're going to build this character off of your real life relationship. And then I went into audition for it, but I don't think they auditioned anybody else.
0: Interesting. So, your older brother actually played your father on the show? Yeah. And there are a lot of people that
1: still ask me if Freddie is my dad and nope, he is not. I have a very real father and he is definitely my dad. You studied theater in Middlebury. Yeah, theater was the first uh, sort of foray for myself into like, what does it mean to be an actor? Uh, And I spent four years at Middlebury, probably only two and a half of them really involved in the theater. It was a small liberal arts college, so not many professions that could actually make money were being taught there. So, there's like that and we were known for like an environmental science program. We had the first environmental science program in the country, I think. But uh, I learned theater there, came out to LA afterwards and that's when things really got going. I always tell people that I learned more about acting my first year of LA than I did in all four years of college in class for it. What was your first acting gig? Oh, geez. There were a bunch if you want to like consider like, oh, in high school, you know, Freddie made a movie and then we, you know, I was in it. Uh, Freddie and I always used to make little movies together and so, those were sort of our original quote unquote short films. We used to fight each other with pool cues and then Freddie would go in and paint and rotoscope every single frame. This is like in gosh, when like Star Wars Episode 1 came out. So, this is a while back, right in the beginning of all of it. But my first real acting role was probably just some online skit or something when I came out to Los Angeles. For the most part, that's sort of what was starting to start pop up was people doing stuff for fun or, you know, it was a college project and was something that just ultimately ended
0: up on the internet and nowhere else. That is so fascinating. You've got a lot of different talents because you're also a musician.
1: Yep, that was the Asian. That's the most Asian part of me. I mean, do you play instruments, Sam? I play
0: the trumpet and a little bit of the drums, and I'm a very poor guitarist. What do you like about the drums? Uh, I think I just like hold a rhythm really well. Like I kind of understand mm-hmm. beats. I can just like sight read drum beats. <laughs> oh, nice. That's cool. I mean, do you find that you are like attracted to
1: rhythmic elements in songs? Because I'm also a, r- a very rhythm-based guy and a lot of the music I like, but one of the drums is one of the most important instruments in every song.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think so. I think early on, you know, when the internet was still in its nascent stage and pirating music was still pretty early on, a lot of the music I downloaded off of Napster was like hip-hop, like old Busta Rhymes, like things like that. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, I
1: wasn't the hugest like fan of hip-hop growing up but then when I started to listen to more of it in college and sort of opened my mind to not like sort of putting it in a box where I imagined it before. I was like, oh, hip-hop is just this. Uh, It started becoming way more fascinating and great and like I went back and started listening to The Bustas and I remember growing up with all, with like Jay-Z and stuff back in sixth grade when his hits were hitting the radio. So, it was Pretty interesting. But yeah, I love hip-hop now, especially Kendrick Lamar. That guy is out of control. (laughs) Yeah, everyone loves Kendrick Lamar. It's hard not to and he's incredible at performing live as well. But yeah, to answer your question, we played music growing up. Freddie and I both played the piano and it was many hours of a lot of piano playing (laughs) as I'm sure you're very (laughs) well accustomed to as well.
0: Well, you are also quite the singer and you gain national notoriety by creating the song and writing and performing the song on YouTube, Ching Chong, in response to Alexandra Wallace. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was like after I came out to Los
1: Angeles for a year, I tried acting. I did moderately well, but I just couldn't pay rent, all right? I'll just say this up front. I couldn't pay rent where I was living for the first two and a half years of my life in LA. And I'm very fortunate to have had savings and also, you know, family to help me get through that part of it. But after a year of barely making a buy and buying my own, you know, and purchasing my life and food, the, my biggest purchase that first year I was in LA was For, uh, Red Dead Redemption. And that was the greatest time of my life playing that game when I was super broke. (laughs) And then I decided to go into music. And, um, that's when this racist incident occurred at UCLA where a girl named Alexandra Wallace uploaded a video vlog of her. You know, it was meant to be a series of videos that she was going to post and her and her dad planned it all out that she was going to just complain about different things. And unfortunately, the first thing she decided to complain about was, Asians in the library being too loud and she decided to go the full gamut and do a artificial accent that was mocking them, saying ching chong, ling long, ting tong, bunch of other stuff. A lot of people hate her at the time and sent her death threats. It's, to me, highly amusing because, boy, was that a tone deaf thing to do. Because this also happened like a week after Japan got hit by tsunamis from the huge earthquake that happened and the Fukushima plant and all that stuff. So, it was like, oh my gosh, you could not have published this at a worse time. Uh, It's actually very similar to what's happened recently with United. You know what happened with United, right? Yes, that's right. That guy got dragged off the plane. Yeah, and he was an Asian man. People were trying to figure out what race of Asian he was, which is hilarious because that always seems to be an issue. Uh, but uh, yeah, but like it was just like at a time when sympathy for, you know, the race of Asian people in general was at an all-time high and she posted this video. And so, she got all these death threats. Uh, you can go look it up online as well. It's all on YouTube or you can just tweet at me and ask me and I'll just send you the link. Um Actually, don't do that. No, 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 Google it. I'm not your Google. Sorry, guys. I just, I, forget I said that. <laughs> I will edit that out. <laughs> no, no. Keep it in. Keep it in. I don't really care. But uh, yeah, so, she posted this thing and then posted a response song to her and then it blew up and it was like whammy. All of a sudden, all over the place, it got like 4 million views and like... It was like the third thing I did on YouTube too. So, it was a very overwhelming thing to have happen to me after trying acting for a year and being like, let's try this YouTube thing and immediately getting greeted with a 4 million view video. It was pretty overwhelming.
0: And I think it really spoke to the kind of person that you are because there was a lot of response on the internet that your video really addressed that issue elegantly, that you didn't come at it being angry or mean. Instead, you made a very witty and pithy song about it
1: in a lot of ways, that person that made that video, that Jimmy in the year of two thousand and eleven, is like more mature than the Jimmy of two thousand and seventeen because I found myself getting irrationally angry at things that you know, have happened in politics now recently. but Yeah, I I think my level-headedness about the whole thing was certainly also in response to the extremist, you should die for this video, Alexandra Wallace, messaging that this person was getting. So, it was like, oh gosh, (laughs) I definitely don't want to push that part of it, you know. So, I was very happy and very sort of just naturally fell into what became the video, which was taking the words that she had used and turning them into more of just a, a joke and also like a very open and warm loving way to gently put her down and put her in her place and say to her like, what you did was not correct and this is why. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Without, you know, without being super toxic about it and uh, sort of pithy or snide or any of that sort of stuff, that would have taken away from the genuineness of just like the, hey,
0: you really messed up and you're kind of dumb, so... Here you go. Here's a song for you. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And the song is, was great and the performance was great. And you've also created lots of other uh, videos with music in them. You created the Super Mario Brothers melody. That was really wonderful.
1: Yeah, there was a period of time where I wanted to just do video game melodies. Uh, and just like, oh, I could just do like, you no know, cool acapella versions of all these video game melodies. Because I was in an acapella group in college and I really like that sort of style of music if done right. I got scared because I was like, I don't want to do a series where then this is all I do for the rest of my life is I'm the guy that did video game music. So, I sort of moved away from it after again, getting greeted with such success, I was like, ah. Uh, okay, I'm going to do something else now to keep it fresh. Yeah. So, I just started, I, I kept moving on and you can go through my YouTube and sort of see the progression of where I started and where I got to but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I love doing music on YouTube. It was exhausting but it was a lot of fun.
0: And video games have been a cornerstone of the content that you create because you also have a really successful show, Feast of Fiction. Yep. And that was again, the sort of me going like, ah, what do I do? Uh, something
1: new. And this was a year after, so you'll notice a pattern. I spent a year acting and then I did a year of YouTube music. And then I started a year, actually what's become now five years of Feast of Fiction, which is a cooking show. I sat down and was talking to Freddie in the kitchen and we were like, man, what kind of show exists? I was, I was feeling frustrated. I was like, I need to do something new. This music thing is killing me. Doing one song a week with video and sound production is just superbly exhausting. I'm coming out of it not happy anymore and not really excited to do it anymore uh, so I wanted to do something new and so we're like what show should exist that doesn't exist and we came up with Feast of Fiction which is a show that just makes the food that existed in your favorite book, your favorite TV show or anime or cartoon or children's story and movie and we turned it into real life. Uh, because all the, you know, you'd always read about them. I remember The most resonant one I think for a lot of people is Harry Potter. You know, every time they went to the great dining hall, they had so much incredible food and it was described in great detail by the authors that you always wanted to eat it in real life. So, the show takes that dream and puts it into real life and Feast of Fiction has been going for five straight years now. And we've made, I think, over 80 videos. I need to actually, I'm going to look on my computer right now. But we've made a bunch of videos uh, and it's evolved a lot over the years too and sort of what we're doing with it. And the next big thing we're doing is that we're going to be putting a lot more videos
0: on Facebook. So, another place for people to see these fun little recipes. Yeah, that's right. You and your co-host Ashley do a great job. Um, some of my favorite videos are when you make the recipes from Shokugeki no Soma, Food Wars. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Do you like that? Do you like that anime? I absolutely love that anime. I love the fact that they are cooking, not so much when they eat something and then their clothes explode off their bodies. <laughs> like, that I could do without. But uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's like strange, right? It's like strange, weird anime garnish if we wanted to stick with the food thing. But the food competition part. It's just wonderful.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's the most Japanese thing ever. It's like, here's this anime that takes so much detail into making sure that every element of the cooking they're doing is correct. And is like incredible and amazes you as much as it amazes the characters inside the anime. And then, of course, it's like, but when they eat it, it's the most orgasmic experience ever. Their clothes fly off and all this other stuff. And my co-host Ashley is great. She, you know, has not grown up with anime like I did. And I'm very used to this sort of just fan service like in-your-face Japan animation being like, boobs, here you go. So, her reaction is great. It's what I expect most people to have and Shoku no Sama definitely takes it to the max. Like they definitely,
0: if the bar had to go to 10, they, they fill it all the way up before <laughs> it gets to literal nudity. That's right. Your first recipe which was the potato pork roast wrapped in bacon, I mean, that seemed to have worked really well and Ashley was like, that's great. But then your second Food Wars recipe was the apple risotto and Ashley was like, (laughs) okay, this is really different. Yeah, it's
1: cool. I mean, if you like anime, you should watch Food Wars. It has, it's insane the animation quality but also like they really spend a lot of time making sure that the food works And the apple risotto, I liked a lot, actually. It's, you know, these are real recipes. You could, some of the stuff that we make, like I just made snack sushi from Steven Universe and it's sushi that has cheese puffs in it. So, it's not like something that's like, oh, yum, let's make this for everyone. You know, Steven, the character in the show is like a child and he has this childlike sensibility to him. The recipes from Food Wars are all super legit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think they hired a chef to consult and make sure everything was uh, culinarily correct. Makes perfect sense to me. Jimmy, I wanted to jump back now to Magic. I mean, your background in performance and your background in acting and producing content and producing relevant content for a community, you really go at a grueling pace. And I wanted to ask, how did you first meet Josh Lee Kwai? Josh
1: Lee Kwai, my my brother in arms is... Man, I can't give that guy enough credit for how like great of a businessman and like work hard worker and just a talented soul he is. I met him because we were both working at Rocket Jump at the time which is Freddy's company, my brother. Uh, They changed from Freddy W to Rocket Jump when they started making more series based stuff. And during the second season of Video Game High School, I was an employee there but I essentially jumped in to help facilitate their social media. And also to be the customer service rep for a lot of the Indiegogo people that had donated uh, on Kickstarter, Indiegogo for video game high school. And Josh came in during season three and uh, really liked Freddy, really liked the content they were doing. And he was a trailer editor and was like, hey, I would love to, you know, help you guys out, edit some trailers. I also just want to know more about the company. I think it's really interesting what you guys are doing. And I think you're sort of at the top of what you're trying to do. And I think this could have a ton of potential. And so, he came in and helped cut some trailers for the third season. And if you guys look up the third season of VGHS, that trailer is on fire because Josh edited it and it is great. And uh, he and I started talking with another employee there, Clint, about Magic one day. And we're like, oh, yeah, we've heard about this commander thing a bunch. Uh, And then someone's like, oh, yeah, I have a commander deck. And we all came back, I think like a week later, and we had all built a deck. And we're like, all right, let's sit down and play. And from there, it just, just was like a deep dive for me personally just into magic again. That was right when Journey into Nix came out and I was like, I'm going to the pre-release. I'm listening to limited resources. I am just going ham and I loved all their content and Josh also listened to limited resources too and we were like, hey, you ever think about doing something like a podcast? I think it was Josh's idea and uh, I was like, this sounds like a cool idea. I've always wanted a podcast. I like the idea of doing it. Obviously, I'm still doing it right now with you (laughs) and we sat down, scripted out a bunch of episodes and recorded a bunch and listened to it and we're like, that is not good enough to release (laughs) and kept recording until we got to a place where we thought we were solid and then jumped off from there. Yeah,
0: I mean, I've seen some tweets from Josh that has like a, a screenshot of like just the clips that he's editing in Premiere and it's like a thousand little clips. And I'm just like, wow. I mean, because, I mean, Game Nights is just phenomenal. I mean, I've been watching the recent episodes and there's a ton of editing. Yeah,
1: it's something that I think is very easy to take for granted because good editing, and any editor will agree with this, you shouldn't notice it if it's done well right yes. it's not something that sticks out at you it's like oh wow what a well edited show no you're like wow what a beautiful show Game of Thrones wow those incredible landscapes those were the the vastness of it that's what you remember about the show you don't remember like man what, when they were in that single tight shot and then he cut back to the other guy and then he said the words but then they stayed on him for the other reaction that was incredible no, you don't think about it in that way good editing is like the hidden cracks between every every single letter that makes the letters work uh, so that's why I like Game Night so much too is that it feels like a real show and it feels like something that A, anyone can watch and understand which I think is really important because we're trying to build community and B, is enjoyable and high enough level for the people that are more enfranchised with the games can also enjoy on a deeper level. And of course, there's even the small C where it's like, I get to be the person that corrects a misplay in the comments, even if those people are 95% of the time incorrect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And for the listening audience, if you haven't watched Game Nights, hop onto YouTube and watch Game Nights. It is incredible. Um, Whenever I watch it, I'm just like, I want to play Commander now. And I also aspire to have my commander sessions go as well as yours do.
1: Yeah. I mean, part of it is Josh and I have been playing together for two straight years and we spend, I probably spend more time with Josh than anyone else that I know (laughs) because we're always (laughs) podcasting, sitting across from each other, meeting, or just talking about stuff in general and like trying to launch stuff and create apps or do whatever. Uh, and that contributes a ton to having a good play group is really just the chemistry and the, the history between people, especially if in general, that history is more positive than negative. I think a big, you know, trouble that a lot of people run into is like, I play with three people, I hate one of those people, but I still have to play with that person. And it's like, oh, well, if your personal relationship
0: with someone isn't great, you're not going to be having as good of a time. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. EDH is just one of my favorite formats. I love the fact that it's a singleton format. And so, it's pretty fair in that sense. And then there's, you know, you could basically use anything except for what's, you know, banned. But uh, there's a lot of interactions, a lot of ridiculousness, a lot of like infinite combos. It's very swingy. And I I really love that. I think it just, you know, whoever came up with that format, you know the rules committee, they really did a good job to really revitalize uh, uh, basically an internal format for the game. Yeah, it's cool
1: and I like the origin story where it was made by judges that were bored at GPs and wanted to play a game together that, you know, they could cobble together their cards and that's sort of the, I mean, Kitchen Table Magic, I think the name of this podcast speaks exactly to the element about EDH that is that fun, which is like, it's Kitchen Table. Anything and everything can happen at all different power levels and hopefully it's casual enough that no one is going to walk away being...
0: Very hurt, you know, by whatever happened in. (laughs) Yeah. In, in their world. Exactly. You know what's so funny is just like recently I interviewed Brian Weissman and he's a legendary pro player from 1994 Magic. Uh, he invented the deck. But another thing that he does is that he plays one-on-one EDH and he has a win rate of 90%. Like it's like ridiculous. Oh my gosh. And so, I uh, recently had the honor of playing a little bit of one-on-one EDH with him and you know, all my EDH decks are, are pretty stupid and like multiplayer but it was just like wow, it's turn three and I've already lost. Like so ridiculous and like even his like two gh uh, deck like yeah. absolutely smashes anything that I've been able to put together. So if you ever get him onto game nights, I mean I don't know if he likes playing uh, multiplayer EDH, but he is absolutely a savant when it comes to EDH.
1: If we can make him into the arch enemy, maybe it'll be a it'll be a challenge. Uh, <laughs> it's funny though. There is you know I used to think when I first started playing at the very first I was like, oh, man, I'm pretty good at magic. I could probably go pro. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, the most ridiculous statement I've had in my head in a long time. And then, yeah, there is such a stark difference from people that are like true professionals at the game because when we have Melissa on to play and I've also played EDH with people like Glenn Jones and Gavin Verhey and these are all very, very good magic players. It's really interesting because they're functioning at a higher level in the game and it's really crazy to try and keep up with because you realize so many things in those moments like, man, my hand doesn't do anything. Their hand always does something, you know, and they found the perfect balance in how to play their game in a way and their decks and they know their cards so well that it's always like when they turn their engine on of their car, it is well-oiled and it's a nice machine. I'm over here cranking the engine six times just to get my third land out and I'm like, man, I wish I had more X, Y and Z in this deck but they've already got all that covered, you know. Their car has AC, their radio works, everything is good, their transmission is squeaky clean and my car is like busted up and barely functioning on the AM <laughs> stations. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely when you're playing EDH and things should be broken but you just like draw a pass, play a yeah, land pass. Not, definitely not a good feeling. But But you know, that's kind of
1: what the podcast is here for listeners that haven't heard the command zone. It's like we want to make sure that your decks don't stumble out the gate. You're able to get to where you need to with your decks and just engender a better playing experience for you so that you never have to walk away from the table and be like, man, that wasn't fun, you know, because my deck didn't work. Yeah. Because that's the one of the few things that you can definitely have full control over is how
0: you design your deck and how it works. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I I saw a tweet from you earlier uh, that you were just like, man, this is what it looks like after an 18-hour day and you're producing all this (laughs) content and you're so active in the community. Where do you find the balance to be able to just relax and play some Magic for fun? Uh, i take deep dives into
1: Magic World when I need to. Uh, It'll be like, hey, this weekend, I'm flying to San Francisco and I'm going to this uh, LGS called Anime Imports because my friends are in San Fran and I'm going to do six pre-releases in a row. Like that. (laughs) 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 That's one of the things I do to like relax and have a good time. And that actually happened this last weekend with Ket, which was a bunch of fun. Yeah, I mean, I love the game so much. And we found that the more you podcast and do stuff for it, the less you get to actually play it. Yep. And there's something very, very valuable in making sure that when you play the game, you gain experience about being able to talk about it in a different way. Uh, So that's like a very valuable part, obviously, of playing Magic. And it's something that I hope that I can do more and more of in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I also had aspirations of being a professional magic player and playing magic really well, and I quickly learned after just a short period of grinding, I was just like, "Oh yeah, that's just completely unrealistic considering <laughs> how much knowledge I need to just to get to that base level." But I was yeah, just like, totally. you know, I I didn't want to lose connection with the community, and that was one of the reasons why I decided to start this podcast was I wanted to talk to people and just kind of get to know them and kind of understand what they think. You know, you're right, Jimmy you said earlier about like when once you start content creation, you almost stop playing magic altogether. And I rarely play magic now. So when I do, it's like a huge is like a huge deal for me. <laughs> it was like a yeah, treat. Right. Yeah, you're like, oh my gosh, clear the schedule. We're playing magic tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't lost all of my skills. I don't suck horribly. I think I've actually gotten a little bit better over the years because I'm more intentional about what I do now. Yeah, I, I think there is a maturity too
1: for sure with magic because you know the being the red player, it's very easy to be like, I'm just gonna tilt forward and run until I stop running. <laughs> uh, but there is there's a lot of planning and the idea of stuff like playing to your outs is something that is hard to grasp onto the idea of for a while until you finally start to comprehend the idea from a larger top-down perspective, which just takes time
0: and age. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've talked about um, having a lot spending a lot of time with Josh and you know, you were like, I spend so much time with Josh, either talking about magic, playing magic, or producing content and, and things like that. And your your content is really elegant. You and Josh have a lot of on great on air chemistry and the things that you talk about are really fluid and smooth. Do you guys work out a script or do you just kind of have talking points that you guys go off of?
1: So patrons of the show <laughs> patreon.com slash command zone, can actually download the show notes that we have for all of the episodes. So, you can see exactly what we are looking at as we record each episode. So, we usually put out a, um, a you know, I'd say a mediumly detailed outline, sometimes much more so if we're going really deep on something. For a set review, for instance, they'll just say all the cards we want to talk about and then have the sort of the show intro and outro and the organization's little stuff around it. Uh, That's all we see when we talk at, you know, at first when we started podcasting, it was a bit more detailed. And I would sometimes even print separate outlines for myself and Josh so that I would have my talking points on one just because I didn't want to forget them as we went through it. You know, it's changed over the years. It's definitely gotten a bit more simple, I guess, as time has gone on and we've really figured out our chemistry and the rhythm of how things work, who says what, when you say it. It's one of those things that just takes, you know, and I don't know how many hours we'd be into it now. I would guess like 800 plus hours into it. It's just something that takes time and a lot of being open to having a like synergistic relationship with someone in terms of presenting something like you're both trying to get the same ideas out for the most part and you usually agree on things you just need to figure out how to throw the ball back and forth in a way that isn't like one person holds on to it forever and then gives it back to the other person.
0: so, so there's a lot of informative content. You guys talk also about, you know, set reviews, a little bit of strategy. You guys do uh, game nights, which is, you know, basically live action, you know, a a commander uh, match between four players. And then you, Josh and the professor also have uh, kitchen table fables, which are these little shorts that are very funny.
1: Yeah. The Kitchen Table Fables have been a lot of fun. I mean, those are definitely, uh, I would say Game Nights is hard to make because it takes, Josh, 80 plus hours to sit down and get through every single second and minute of it and make it as refined as it is. But Kitchen Table Fables is probably actually the most difficult and expensive thing to do out of everything. And, you know, we want to try and put stuff out there and see what resonates with people and see what people really like. And I think when we first made Kitchen Table Fables, that was definitely like a, hey, let's check it out. We wanted, we have some skit ideas. We want to see how it's going to go. And the response we got was a ton of fun and we got the prof in for an episode as well. And then when we did Game Nights, it was, the response was unbelievable. I mean, the people have been coming up to me in stores and saying how much they like the series and stuff. Josh had the same experience as well at the last pre-release. We've seen pictures of stores across the world playing it on the TVs that run in the stores and stuff too. So, there's like something really special about Game Nights that has me really excited. Um, And Kitchen Table Fables was certainly in the same vein of like, let's put something out there and see if people like it or not. And we definitely want to bring it back. And we're just trying to sort of figure out what the best way to attack that is without making us all want to quit making content because we're so
0: exhausted. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely a content burnout. I think one of the things that plagues magic as a community is that the board state sometimes is very complex and also not being able to represent the board state in a visually competent way is really detrimental to viewers and content creators and just the community in general. And the one thing that I saw with Game Nights is that that almost never happens. That almost never happens. You know, in your most recent uh, Game Nights episode, episode number 6 with Cassius Marsh and Mel Lee, whenever a minus 1, minus 1 counter would be put onto something, there would be an arrow, there would be a sound effect, you'd see the power and toughest decrease, and then you get the little sound effects and you get snakes pop in.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, here's a Again, like I'm really stressing this because there have been some people that have expressed doubts at how long it takes to edit one of these and put these together, and as though we are lying to them for some odd reason, we would say like it's a hundred hours and they're like, Ha, no way, I bet I could do it in ten and There's a lot of laughter that ensues like, oh my goodness, no way. (laughs) Like you have to communicate all those layers of information just like you described. You did a great job describing it, which is like you have sound effects, you have visual effects and you have graphics that all convey what is happening so that you can understand it when you're watching it because it is a lot of information to process. So, the fact that, you know, Josh is able to get all that across in an effective, fun and expedient way is what makes, I think, the content really fun and special. And hopefully, you know, we get to keep doing this more and more and more and and teaming up and doing bigger things with it. And, you know, the goal is always to take something and grow
0: it to be the best it can be. And hopefully, Game Nights is on that path. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've been a uh, graphic designer for the last uh, eight years and so, um, the two things on my repertoire that I just like didn't know how to do was sound editing and then soon to be video editing. And so, Uh when I got into sound editing, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a lot harder than it seems. But now, I have a process (laughs) and I'm like, I take all that for granted. And so, now, I'm kind of like dabbling into like a little bit of special effects, motion graphics and a little bit of like video editing. And so, when I watch Game Nights, I'm just like, first of all, that Little thing that happened, like if something blows up a card on the board and then it disappears, it's like, well, you know, that like Josh had to get a still of when that card wasn't there and then had to Photoshop a mask on top of that. And it's like, oh, yep. you know, or he stopped everyone and gingerly picked up the card and without touching anything else for continuity. Like those yeah. things really pile up to like the, like an exponential degree.
1: Yeah, it's about being detail-oriented, I think, which is what separates a lot of like in terms of like how much work is put into something. A lot of work has a lot of detail-oriented people really making sure that every bit is there. You know, it's when you watch a commercial on TV, for example, there's not a single thing that's out of place. Unless it's like filmed with real footage or whatever. But if it's a produced commercial, like a car commercial, everything is exactly where it should be. And that's part of what the allure of commercials are, is that they are super detail-oriented in that fashion. And once you start paying attention to it, you'll be like, oh, this is the fakest thing ever. But it looks like the most realistic thing in the world. So, it's the same sort of idea of just like it takes a lot of detail-oriented stuff to make it seem flawless. In fact, the more time, the, the longer you spend
0: sculpting something, when you stand back and look at it, the more polished it will be, sort of. Jimmy, recently you and Josh, the command zone, released a lifelinker app.
1: Hooray! Apps are fun <laughs> and apps are great. So lifelinker is, uh, <laughs> I don't know. The hits keep on coming apparently. So, Lifelinger, Josh and I were like, we should make a life app. There's no reason not to. Let's see if we know anyone that can. And I'm very fortunate to have a friend and a guy named Danny Vink who uh, has worked at Rocket Jump and uh, has known me and Freddie and the whole gang for a long time. And he's just a super talented all around, can do whatever you the task you put in front of him, which is like fantastic. And he was like, hey, Danny, do you think you could make this and we show him sort of like a prototype of what it would be and he'd be like, oh, 100%. And so, we got to work on LifeLinker and we spent about five months developing it now and we released it and it's a life app. That you can customize, and the big thing is like we wanted to give back to the community, and so you can actually unlock backgrounds for your favorite creators, whether it's the professor or Megan Demaria from Magic the Amateuring, Wedge from the Mana Source, Limited Resources, Commander and Commander's Brew, and a whole list of other people that we thought were sort of like the the leaders of the community that we were in, and a lot of them have Patreons as well. So we're like, hey, here's just an extra little thing you can give to people if you if you can. And it was a a very fun way to give back and now actually just have a life app that I'm happy to use at the table because I can ask my opponent like, hey, what background do you want? And they can choose a different color and customize it and makes magic feel like a game for me again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it was uh, really well done. Um, I saw it uh, being promoted and everyone was really excited about it. Just the, the reception was really positive. Yeah, I'm really happy for that.
1: Of course, we're reading all of the feedback and we what we want to do is, you know, we're a community podcast and we are a community team and we want to do our best to make the community feel like a united one instead of one that's gonna tear itself apart over, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did this. R oh, rah rah-rah rabble rabble rabble. They took our jobs, you know, like we don't want that to happen with the magic community. And there's definitely bits and pieces here and there that sometimes it's like, oh boy, like this toxicity is not going to be healthy for all of us playing this card game. It's a game, it's a card game, guys. You put cards on the table you shuffle them up and then you play against each other. It's for fun. So, we want to make sure that we're taking in community feedback and making sure that like stuff like this Life app demonstrates to people like, hey, we're all in this together. Uh, this is a game that we all love. So, let's not tear apart the outside the walls of it because we don't like certain aspects of so- when something happens. Like there's always a better way to go about doing that sort of stuff. And that's like the, uh, the broader overstretching goal of what a Life Linker app does sort of for
0: I think the community as a whole. That's really well said. And thank you, Jimmy and Josh, for doing something like that. And I also wanted to acknowledge both of you for the contributions that you've made for the community because you've made the game more accessible. You've brought joy in producing the content that you've produced. You've helped a lot of people with their EDH And yeah, I hope so. <laughs> that's,
1: the, that, that's the big one for me is like, I really hope uh, that people have had a better time playing Magic because I certainly have by doing the podcast. Like, it's made me into a better player. So, I'm hoping to share that with as many people as
0: I can. That's really cool. Jimmy, I ask all of my guests some rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? Yes, ready. Okay, Jimmy, rapid-fire question number one. Of the five colors of Magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what is your favorite color and why? Oh, red. I am as hasty and as
1: uh, crazy as it gets. I like running at things and I like not stopping until my opponent is done. Do you have a favorite red card? Greater Gargadon. What a card. (laughs) Greater Cargadon. Sack Outlet. It does everything, man. That or or Glorious End just came out. That might be one of my new favorite red cards. It says two in a red, instant, end the turn. (laughs) And then it says you lose the game at the beginning of your next end step or something. So I, that's like as red as it gets. I'm all about that card. Wow, you're just like all in red. Yeah, all in, baby,
0: <laughs> and, and blue and black. You got and blue and black and those. Okay, so you're so if you were to pair them, you'd be kind of Grixis. Yeah, Grixis for sure. Sweet, sweet. Okay, Jimmy. Rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic: The Gathering, what would it be? Uh, I would have Wizards of the Coast be the rules committee. abbreviation. <laughs> <For the age. laughs> done. <laughs> I just
1: like it being under one house. It's They have the information. They have the resources. There's a way that we can make everyone that needs to work on it together, together. There's a way to not have to take away that much, you know, like Sheldon Manor can still be an integral part of the rules committee. I just think that it needs more resources to really function at its best level.
0: Jimmy, question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? <sighs> Gaia's Cradle. No, uh, I would
1: give every Magic player unlimited dual lands. So, that the price of every dual land would now be $0 and that everyone has access to the cards that are the most restrictive for the biggest formats, for all the formats that are older than standard. Got it. Just give them all lands. Everyone gets infinite dual lands and infinite fetch lands. Done.
0: Okay. Sounds good. Jimmy, question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? I see
1: a lot of Nicol Bolas, for one, if we want to talk immediate future. Mm-hmm. And then for long-term future, I see a game that hopefully will only keep growing and continue this ridiculously explosive growth that it's had over the past, I guess, seven or eight years now. I want that to keep going and I want it to... to I want a world where everyone in every country, there's going you're going to be able to find magic cards and magic players. Very good. And last, Jimmy, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Uh, I mean, just like you've heard me talk for a billion hours now and I feel like I've just nonstop babbled the entire time if you like the podcast, go check it out. <laughs> all my links should be somewhere. I'm sure Sam will post them somewhere. And also check out, I mean, I know that you've done interviews with like Rosewater and stuff too, right? Yes, I have. Yeah, you guys should definitely check those out because those are all, I mean, Mark Rosewater is, I respect that man a great, great deal. He is an uh, an incredible talent and he's done some great talks too. So, I'm sure his guest appearance on this episode is also excellent. So, go check that
0: out. Yeah, Mark Rosewater was the season one finale of Kitchen Table Magic and uh, he, he's very nice and very interesting to talk to and uh, he was just saying how you are all going to be very excited for what is to come and you're just going to say wow and wow and wow and you know, I'm very excited for Magic's uh, future. I will say this, Mark is a great hype man and he
1: got me hyped up by you saying that to me repeating what he said because I'm sure he's right.
0: <laughs> and uh, I will have all the links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Sam. It was a great pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Jimmy Wong. Go say hi to Jimmy on Twitter at jf Wong. Follow the command zone at commandcast. I'll have links to Jimmy and Josh's YouTube channel for the command zone in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Jimmy and Josh do a great job making their videos and producing their content. They've been pillars of the community to help bring new players into Magic the Gathering. And if you're someone who is new to MTG, I welcome you and I'm so happy you're here. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. The Kitchen Table Magic podcast has been all about the origins of the game and members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the Kitchen Table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games is so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games that allow local communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, please be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. I also want to welcome new listeners to Kitchen Table Magic. If you're new to the show, drop me a line and say hi. And be sure to check out Season 1, there's a lot of great interviews there. I want to take a moment for a big thank you to Aaron for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. Wow, thank you Aaron for your generosity in supporting Kitchen Table Magic. I'll be sending out your special gift, be on the lookout for some mail. As I mentioned in my previous episode, I have a very special Patreon supporters gift that I'm planning for the Season 2 finale. All of my Patreon supporters at the $6 level get special gifts for my interviews. If you would like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic and become a supporter. For just a few bucks a month, you'll get access to special audio content, behind-the-scenes show notes, and special gifts from my interviews. I want to take this moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters, Brian, James, Marcus, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Mark, and Aaron for your generous support. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic the Gathering community with the world. Thank you so much. I'm always here to connect with you and answer your questions. Email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. Follow me on Twitter at KTM Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and mtgcast.com. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic, I think,
1: with maybe a few exceptions, I've done 12 Mox Pearl, 11 Mox Sapphire, 10 Mox Jet, 9 Ruby, 10 Emerald, 11 Lotus, 5 Recall, 5 Walk, and I didn't go back and check Time Twister because I, I don't count Time Twister. That's <laughs> 73 pieces of power, uh, excluding all the Time Twisters I've done, um, which, wow, it's uh, kind of crazy to remember a time when I hadn't altered a
0: gold piece of power. I'm talking to Eric Klug, the magic community's foremost altar artist. Eric paints absolutely stunning altars in the style of classical art such as Aronimus Bosch and Alphonse Mucha. Eric has also reproduced art in the style of Therese Nielsen's Guru Lands and has a wide range including popular motifs from Miyazaki to Marvel Comics. Join me and the master himself, Eric Klug, as we talk about his magical art all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.